Okay, what are the three kinds of death, senses of death that we find in the Bible? Physical, spiritual, and second death. Okay, and what are those? What define those? Physical death Physical is pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yes. Separation of material from immaterial. Right. Okay. Spiritual? Separation from God. Right, but in what sense? That's probably the... In the unregenerate. Yeah. Right, so in the sense of a, of a hostility, hostility towards God, right. And then uh, the second death is what? Right, so the second death made permanent, if I can put it that way. And so what ties them all together? Separation. The idea of separation, mm-hmm. which is uh, why we uh, bring that up, because... the if it is a separation, then we have to ask, is there a spiritual death that Christ experienced? And if so, what does it look like? And so we gave you some options here on number two. What are, what's your answer? Okay, and the blank was supposed to be designed to, if you don't have a, if you didn't pick A or B or C, then what's the what would you say? But Christ did not die a spiritual death because he was not separated from the Father. Okay. Anybody else have something different? We at least leave left the possibility that you could talk of of a an abandonment whereby the Father just sort of let let what happened to the Son happen. Uh, but that's that's scarcely to be considered death, you know. Yeah, it was something illegal separation. Yeah, yeah, legal death. Which I, again, I, I I still scratch my head as to wonder what a legal death is. I mean, I know we talk about somebody who's legally dead, but but it's just a, a declaration of a of a of an actual death. It's not. It's it's death is experienced, not declared per se. Okay. Well, good. And then, last question. After Christ died on the cross, he went to Sha'ol Hades to complete his atoning work. False. 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 Why is it false? His atoning work was finished okay. on the cross, but... Yeah. So, we, we did suggest he did go to Sha'ol right. Hades, but not for that. Why, why, why did we suggest he did go? To release the... Um, Old Testament, believe it. Yeah. Old, Old Testament, Testament saints, yeah. Yeah. and also uh, right to confirm the <coughs> of the unrighteous dead. Mm-hmm. Very good. Now, would someone ever say? It seemed like a couple Sundays ago, Troy sort of talked about <laughs> the. Uh, oh boy, <laughs> you're gonna fit me against somebody here. <laughs> no, but, and I think I know what he was talking about. The uh, the resurrection was part of the atonement work. I don't know if he said it that way. Well, okay. You know, as, as I wrote the question, I actually had that mind thought in my Because when he was saying it, I'm thinking, okay, I agree with what you're saying, but Christ said it's finished here. There is but a sense works. in which the atoning work is the whole thing. Because but, it would have, this would have been worthless if it hadn't been. Right. So, so the so the resurrection is necessary to atonement. If there isn't a resurrection, then the atonement didn't take so in that sense, yes, the whole the whole thing is the atoning work of Christ. Same time, yeah. What I meant is, did, did yeah. he have to go to suffer 
further, and the answer is no on that. So, yeah, good good catch, actually. I actually thought that when I wrote the quiz. Well, I mean, I understood. Yeah. <laughs> your, your, your point is well taken. Here. Showing up the rest of the class here. You really had that one. That's what I was trying to bring up. Oh, that was what you taught. <laughs> Wait a minute, he's so. saying something. Um, yes, yes, Troy is correct. Okay, I think we're on page 57, right? Okay, so tonight we'll talk mostly here about the, well, entirely tonight here, as to what the meaning of atonement is, and then we'll continue on next week talking, well, probably finishing up that discussion, talking about what makes the atonement valuable, and uh, then... Uh, asking and answering this question about the the limitation of the atonement, the extent of the atonement, which is which is a, a, a topic on which there's considerable disagreement, um, and so I'm not going to be too heavy-handed with it. But obviously, I've got an opinion here, so we'll we'll at least put the issues out there so that you understand them, um, and then uh, work from there. Okay, so the meaning of the death of Christ uh, and the idea of atonement. Um, I introduce this by here by saying that Christ's atoning life and death accomplished more than one thing is conceded. Uh, not conceded, conceded. We, we, we recognize that when he died on the cross, he did a lot of things. He paid the debt of sin. He he made possible the reconciliation of the whole realm. He 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 guaranteed that rights will be rewarded and wrongs will ultimately be punished. We we recognize there's a lot that goes on with the death of Christ, but I think we can reduce it at least reduce the death of Christ to at least the primary thing that Christ was doing. And uh, this is a huge question not only because of its significance for Christian theology, but also because this is a question that is answered about 50 different ways out there on the street. Uh, I think I've mentioned, if you ask 10 people on the street, why did Jesus die on the cross, you'll probably get 11 answers, at least from the ones who even take a stab at it. And, and that's not just true on the street, it's true in the academy as well. Uh, so let's look at some of the options here, and uh, and see if we can't come up with the uh, with the Christian understanding of what's going on. I have it classified three ways, if I if I may, and then there's there's some subpoints under each one. But it's I think important for us to this this is a vital question here. I'll start here with what I call Satan word <coughs> theories of atonement. What I mean by that is Christ is doing something to Satan on the cross in order to uh, to forward his ends. The second one is, the second category would be manward theories of atonement. The idea here is that God is doing something for the benefit of humans, and the third is that Christ is doing something relative to God. He's satisfying the wrath of God. Now, there's a sense in which all three of these is, are true, right? Uh, Christ conquers Satan on the cross. Uh, 
he also supplies for us not only the what's necessary for our our eternal salvation, but also offers us an example for us to follow as well. And it's true that Christ died to satisfy the just and holy wrath of God. Uh, but you emphasize what tends to happen is that one or more of these is emphasized, and so you can find a whole collage of reasons for the atonement out there based on what you emphasize as the primary thing that Christ is doing on the cross. I think it's important to look at these. We'll start with Satan-word theories of the atonement. This is is something that was very common in the early church. This was the dominant view of the early church, that what Jesus was doing was conquering evil, you know, this is a, 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 it's a matter of cosmic conflict between God and Satan, good and evil, and God wins on the cross. And this victory that God has over Satan, he crushes his head, holds promise in turn of ultimate victory over the powers of tyranny and oppression now in the ascendancy on earth. Okay? And so there's a great many people who, if you talk, and it's particularly true within what's sometimes known as liberation theology today, among oppressed people groups. Why did Jesus die on the cross? So that good would win and we'd be vindicated someday. Um, uh, again, I don't you know it's politically incorrect to, 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 you know, point out certain groups here sometimes, but in the black community, this is this is this is often you often find this in black theology. You know, Christ died on the cross to finally set things straight, and we're going to overcome someday. Okay, because Jesus overcame, and that and that and and if you and if you and if you go into a church where liberation theology is taught, that's that's the overwhelming reason Jesus died on the cross, so that we can overcome someday. Um, and so, like I say, it is it is an emphasis in the scripture, but it is, is it the emphasis of what Christ is doing on the cross? I don't think we can sustain it. But let's look at these two, two, two elements here, because they're not all the same. First is the ransom view of the atonement. This is more of a, that, that Christ's death is a commercial transaction. Uh, Christ's death is the payment of a ransom price to Satan to buy back the souls of men that Satan owns as a result of the fall. Okay, so uh, mankind sin, Adam and Eve, and the rest of mankind sin, and so Satan owns them as the prince of this world. And in order to buy them back, Jesus has to give his life. And so it's not so much a payment to God to satisfy his wrath, but actually it's a payment to Satan to buy back the souls of mankind. But there's a twist to it. God offers Satan a clever trade of his son's life in exchange for the souls of men, which Satan is like, sure, I'll do that. I mean, if I can get to kill God, I'll give you back these 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 souls that, uh, that sinned. However, there's a trickery known only to God, that because Christ is perfect, he can't die permanently. And if you've ever watched or read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, you see this. 
C.S. Lewis believes in the ransom view of the atonement. Okay, so what happens when you know Edmund's been captured by the is it the White Witch? Is that right? I think so. I, I, I get the White Wizard and the White Witch mixed up. I, I, get, I get my I get my fantasies <laughs> mixed up. Is it Tolkien or is it Lewis? <laughs> so, so, so the White Witch has has Edmund right, and so he captured him, and so. And so what does Aslan do? He offers his own life in exchange for Edmund. He goes in, he gets bound, tied up, put on the stone table, and Edmund goes free. And this is his, this is the atoning event for him. Of course, Aslan is killed by the witch, and, and then, and then, then the, the witch and all of her cronies, all her friends, uh, decide, okay, now we're going on the warpath against uh, Aslan's world, leave him behind. But little did they know that on the side of the table is, is written a secret message that nobody noticed. I, and I forget the wording here, but if, if, if the sacrifice that's made on this table is perfect, it can't stay dead. And so, of course, the mice come along and, you know, chew, chew away the uh, ropes and Aslan rises so again emblematic of the resurrection and so this is this is this is this is the ransom view of the atonement uh, that that what Christ was doing on the cross was paying the price to buy back the souls of men from Satan who owns them as a result of the fall problems there's a couple of problems with this one there's no attention to divine justice here okay it's there's no satisfaction of divine justice, only a purchase of souls owned by Satan, which is faulty in itself. It's not as though Satan owns everything that fell. God owns everything still. It's not it's not as though this Satan somehow has 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 secured ownership of the souls of, of all who have sinned. That's just not true. God owns everything still. And so Satan has no has no real part in that, and it, it, again, it you know puts Satan equal with God in some sense. And then there's also the, this divine deception. So the little twist that uh, that's put in that you can't stay dead if you're a perfect sacrifice. Well, that just seems a little bit deceitful. So all of these things come together to suggest um, that. That's not really the emphasis that's being made here with atonement, the idea of a, a ransom paid to Satan. Another view of atonement that involves Satan here is what's sometimes called Christus Victor, or Christ as Victor, which is a view that's, again, popular in liberation theologies that are common among repressed people groups. I mentioned Black theology, but it's not it's not unique to black theology. There are many other repressed people groups uh, that you find scattered throughout. Sometimes sometimes it's it's in the third in a lot of third world countries have this uh, in South America as well. So there, it's not as though it's limited to black theology, but that's perhaps what we see it most where we see it most in the states at least. So again, the idea here that Christ's atonement is a triumph of God over Satan and a triumph of good over evil, which gives us hope of triumph and relief, both in this life and the hereafter. Okay, so we are going to overcome. We're going to overcome now, 
and we're going to decisively overcome in the future. Okay, so that's and 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 so that's that's there's a lot of atonement songs in I mean, if you're familiar with with the, uh, the the black spirituals that were written many of them during the 19th century. This is a major theme that because Christ died, we're going to win. We're going to triumph. We're going to overcome. Uh, we're going to. I don't know that revenge was the idea, but it could. It can sometimes creep into that. I, we are going. We are going to end up on top because we were the ones that were repressed and abused all these years. So, so good is going to triumph, and we're and we're good. So we're going to triumph again. There's some sense in which this is true, in, in an in an in an absolute sense. The fact that Christ conquered sin does mean. That in the in the in the last times, you know, heaven will be devoid of evil. Evil will be concentrated in hell, and that's where it's going to be. That's where it's going to be, you know, contained. Uh, uh, but that that that's not again the whole point of of uh, atonement. It's a little bit too optimistic about victory in the present age, and fails again to capture the ethical basis. Of the victory, why is victory possible? Uh, wh- why is it that now that uh, good is going to finally triumph over evil? Well, because the holy wrath of God was satisfied, and so He can extend His grace now, and that is going to make it possible for uh, for ultimately for good to triumph over evil in a grand sense. But that's not the centerpiece of what's going on. Does that, does that make sense? What what we're saying here? Okay. So, any questions on these first two categories? These are perhaps ones that are a little bit out there. Um, probably not quite as common in, in the circles that we've run in. The second set of categories, though, is very, very popular. And again, this is, if you were to ask people on the, you know, on the street, I would say that you're going to get a lot of answers in the B category here. Okay, so let's talk about that. So, more common today are theories of atonement that address the temporal shortcomings of humanity in the world today. Christ died to fix the problems that we have now. So it's primarily a matter of example. Encouraging people to become more ethically and morally self-aware, more sensitive to social injustice, and you know, concerned about correcting those things. And there's two expressions here. They're related, uh, but uh, see if we can't uh, uh, see these. I I would certainly expect that, especially number two, you'll say, wow, yes, I, I see this everywhere. Okay, but let's start with the older one here first. The moral influence view of the atonement sets forth Jesus as a perfect model of conduct in life and in death. And what he does does in life and death should influence us to live the same way. So the idea is moral improvement. Christ died on the cross to raise the bar of of ethics in the world today, if I can put it that way. Uh, This is the standard liberal view, or not, not political liberal, but uh, theological liberal, or modernism. Uh, 
one that was made popular in Charles Sheldon's little book, In His Steps, or What was Would Jesus Do? Did we talk about this here already? Mm-hmm. Okay. thought so. Um, so, again, the whole, the whole idea is written in the, in the I think it was very early 1900s, uh, but the, the idea of, uh, of this two, two young men disturbed by how bad their world had become, decide that they're going to see if they can change the world, or at least their world, by living by the mantra, what would Jesus do? Because that's why Jesus died on the cross, so that we would look to Jesus and ask, what would he do? He was such a great example to us. Let's follow his example, do what he would do, and the world will be a better place. Okay, um, you know, I, I, I have a, I have a, a grandmother, my grandparents, but my grandmother particularly was in this category. Wonderful, wonderful person, uh, you know, model citizen, teacher, Sunday school teacher. I mean, she, she was very involved in every possible way. Uh, and you'd, you'd think of her. I, I think I think very very highly of her, but but I'm I'm afraid the, the thought that she had was okay. Why am I? Why do I do this? Because Jesus did these things, and I want to make my world better. So I'm going to be like Jesus, and I'm going to try and help as many people around me to be like Jesus as I possibly can. So it's again the the, the thing that's missing here is the ethical. Well, okay. There is an ethical aspect here, but the ethical aspect of satisfaction of the wrath of God is absent here. Okay, it's not that God is angry and His wrath needs to be pacified so His grace can come. Rather, Jesus died to give us a great example to to influence us morally to be better people. Okay, I think you talk to a lot of people. Uh, particularly of the older generation, this is really important. Jesus died on the cross to give us an example of how we're supposed to live. He was a good man and a good teacher. <clears throat> we should be like him. And if we all were like Jesus, the world would be a better place. Okay. View, again, I think totally ignores all issues of divine justice, renders the atonement an exercise in promoting what's sometimes called moralistic therapeutic deism. The idea is that if we do better things, we'll feel better about ourselves. Okay? And I think there's a lot of people who think that's what religion is all about. Do good things and feel better because of it. And then uh, there's, there's really no standard of morality that's in view here. Morality here focuses on self-improvement, Earth consciousness, gender sympathy issues, whatever the world decides is the moral thing to do right now. And right now, the world seems to be turning morality on its head. Right now, I mean, the, 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 I mean it, it's it's just remarkable to me that in the, you know this the, in the uh, debate over, say, abortion, for instance, <clears throat> we we look at this and say clearly who who's got the moral high ground? Well, not the people who are killing the babies. But you talk to someone who is a proponent of 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 abortion, and who's the bad guy for them? Well, you are. You're taking away a woman's rights to choose and to take care of herself and to and to have a better life. You're the you're the bad guy because you're opposed to to abortion. 
And it's and it's remarkable how many people believe it. Um, and so, and so what ends up happening within within liberal liberal theology is that this, there's a moving standard of morality. And so what would Jesus do? Well, if Jesus was here, he would care about women. And so there's, there's a moving moral standard. So all of these come together to say, while Christ obviously lived in such a way that uh, there's an appeal, there's appeals throughout the New Testament to be like Christ, Christ-likeness is the goal, of the of of the Christian experience here, nonetheless, that's not the purpose that Christ died is just to make this world a better place, and a more moral place. Okay, and maybe a a secondary benefit of what happens on the cross, but that's not what he's. That's not the reason he went to the cross. A second view here is the incarnational solidarity view, and I think this is a very dominant view, uh, particularly within the, the, the millennial generation, but not limited there too. Okay, I say it's an updating, really, of number one. It sees God as shifting from a punitive to an empathetic approach to reconciliation. Okay, just let me explain this. By living, suffering, and dying among fallen people, God is able, finally, to understand them and to work effectively to help them. And so his mission evolves. This is Tony Jones, uh, who has a book here, uh, Did God Kill Jesus, explains this very well, uh, the position very well. And and he, he says that, all through the Old Testament, God was trying to enforce justice and trying to get people in line, and 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 with that, with a sort of a heavy-handed authoritarian kind of approach, and people weren't responding well. That's the testimony of the Old Testament. Nobody ever responds right, and so so what he does finally, in frustration and desperation, is sends his own son to figure out what's wrong with these people. And so Jesus goes, lives among them, lives perfectly, and then and, and gives. And and as he goes through life, he he realizes what people need was not to be corrected and punished, but to be empathized with and sympathized with. And if we would simply be kind and gentle and generous uh, to these these poor sinners, they'll come around. Okay. And so he realizes, just as he goes to the cross, this realization is made, and so God fundamentally changes his mission away from, you know, trying to enforce or legislate morality, which he did with the law, to empathizing with people and helping them, coming alongside, being sympathetic and kind uh, to, to to people who are, who are hurting and sinful and such. Okay? And that... It, I think to me, to me, that among all of these, this is probably the one I see. You know, the the expectation of Christians within uh, within the world today. What are Christians there for? If they are not there to help us, then they are of no use. And so, any any branch of Christianity that isn't doesn't make it their full bore goal to help 
the down and out and the sinners and 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 hurting people. If if they're not doing that, then there's no use. There's no value in them. Get rid of those Christians. And you're getting even a, a sense of that hostility every day that it, Christians have no value, particularly when they're preaching to us. Now maybe we can we can live with the kinds of Christians that come along and affirm us in, in our sin. I can live with that kind of a Christian, but a kind of Christian that says we need to change, that that says that we need to that we need to uh, uh, trust Christ or we'll be punished. Well, that that kind of Christianity, there's there's no there's no time for. And so this this is a very popular view here uh, in the world today. Um, and I say here, while it's true <coughs> that Christ's atoning work is the eventual source of justice and happiness this view abandons biblical definitions of justice what is justice okay so we're going to pursue social justice what's social justice well it depends on who's defining it okay uh, the scriptures define justice as you know as as living according to God's righteous standards and punishing those who don't and rewarding those who do um and and that's what justice is. But we've redefined social justice. What's social justice now? Well, making sure that gay people have as many rights as straight people, and and making sure that women who have who have accidentally gotten pregnant have a have a way to to get back to normal and get rid of the, the problem that uh, they've that they've developed. And so so social justice again is redefined according to our own standards, recasting it in, in non-foundational standards of morality. And, and, and it seems also with an ironic antipathy towards Christianity, at least it has been historically practiced. You know, morality is what we decide it is, not what you Christians say that it is. In fact, if you Christians try and push that on us, we're going to get really upset. And uh, we're going to take away your your little your uh, privileges and and all that, and we're going to make sure that you get beat back. I think we've got a we've got some we've got some rough times coming in, in for us in, in that regard. And I think it all sort of comes back to this incarnational solidarity view of atonement. Thoughts, questions on that? Because we've got one of our. Uh, People running for the Democratic nomination. The mayor from one. Well, the mayor from what is it? South Bend. But he identifies as a very religious Episcopalian. Right. But then he blasts Pence's God. Right. Exactly. And 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 most and almost certainly this is the kind of view of atonement he's got. Right. Um, So this is the only kind of. Christian that has any any place in the world in which we live right now. Somebody who holds this view of atonement. Other thoughts? Which leads us then to this this last section here, Godward views of atonement, that what Christ is doing on the cross is principally not aimed at Satan or at people, but at God, uh, specifically satisfying his just wrath. Uh, but there, there's actually sort of 
I've got two lists, two, two, two views here. Um, one, I think, is a substandard view, but I still think it fits in this category. So let's see if we can't talk about that. There's a sort of a bridge view, if I can put it there, which is the governmental view. It sort of is part of... I, I, I could I could see putting this under B or C here, uh, but I think there's enough here that I can make it a Godward view. Okay, This view of the atonement, which is very popular among Arminians, uh, Pelagians, recognizes that human sin has consequences in God's moral order. So that there, there is a there is a view to God. Okay, you know God has a moral order uh, that He has established, and when people sin, that order is disrupted. God could simply forgive the sins, but this wouldn't help society. Okay, so so here's. Yeah, here, here's, here's the little twist here. Um, God could, God could save people any number of ways, but He wants to do the thing that most helps the world, helps society. So He ordered Christ to demonstrate for mankind the extreme results of sin in God's holy moral order. This is where this term governmental comes from. So the governmental view of a stone, the holy moral of order of God has been disrupted. So Jesus comes in, he lives a holy life, and as a result, he suffers for it and ultimately dies. And the goal of this, then, is to leave us horror-stricken that our sins were so bad that somebody died. And as a result of that, we say, it's things have got to get better. Okay, we can't let that happen again, as as it happened with Christ, and so there's an impetus now to to greater moral rectitude. The primary error here is in underestimating the extent of depravity. It suggests that we're able to pull up our big our bootstraps and do what we're supposed to do, and uh, you know, uh, with uh, with the, with the uh, proper prodding this. This, this this view of a dying perfect man that we're going to ultimately be convinced, yeah, we need to reform ourselves. That's why I say it's very common within Arminian life and Pelagian life. The idea here that I don't I don't need I don't need anything in order to to improve myself. I just need some information. You know, see the good movie here of what happened here, and if I if I see that then I've got it within me uh, to 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 improve myself and to improve society again. Which brings us then to uh, the uh, 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 the better uh, some better views. Um, actually, I I I I, should, I I just looked at my notes and I realized I've got one one more view that's less than perfect, although it's probably the best one here so far. And that's the satisfaction-only view of atonement. And that's the standard Roman Catholic view. The idea here is that Christ died to remedy the insult made against God, the king of the universe. But his death was not personally substitutionary. Follow this here. Because if you understand this, you understand Catholic theology. Instead, when Christ died, 
dying to satisfy God's holy wrath against sins that he had not committed, he received a vast amount of of merit for which he had no need. Okay, so, so Christ dies for sins, but he had not committed any sin, and so he ends up with, you know, with a credit on his account, right? He's, he's got, I remember if you used credit wrong here, but bear with me. <laughs> he's, he's, got, he's got money in the bank that he doesn't need, and so he now can share it with people. But it's not a substitutionary atonement. He didn't actually die for specific people. He died generally to accumulate this pool of merit here that he can now dispense. Or, if I could put it this way, that he can allow the church to dispense. Just don't they call it the treasury? Don't they use those words? It may be. But it's, it's, yeah. it's a, but, but, there, but the idea here is that there is a storehouse, a treasury of merit that we can tap into. How do you get this? Well, uh, through, through the sacraments. How do you get the grace? Well, there's means of grace. There are seven means of grace. There are seven sacraments. You do these things and you get a little bit. You get, you get a little bit of this grace. You do enough of these things, you get yourself into heaven. Uh, if you don't do any of these things, you get into hell. If you do just a little bit, not enough, well, then you can be in purgatory for a time. Okay. So here's the idea. So the old, the, the, the idea here is that when Christ dies on the cross, he satisfies the wrath of God, but not against specific sinners. It's just a general satisfaction of God's wrath against sin generally. Okay, so this is this is this is Anselm's view. This is the standard Roman Catholic view of what Christ did on the cross. Um, so if you ask a if you ask a, a, a Roman Catholic, what did Christ do on the cross? Well, he died for sin. And they'll admit that. I mean, if they. Uh, they understand Catholic theology. Some some Catholics don't even understand their own theology. But uh, but if you but if you ask an uninformed an Catholic, what was Christ doing on the cross? He was he was dying for sin. Was he dying for your sin? Well, maybe <laughs> depends. <laughs> depends on depends on whether I go and get it or not. You know, it, and so and so the so so when so. So what 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 Roman Catholicism then looks like is uh, Christ dies on the cross to satisfy original sin, but every sin thereafter I've got to take care of not because not necessarily by my own merit, but because I'm doing the things necessary to get the merit of Christ's obedience. Does that make sense? Does that follow? Um, Was this the view? Of- uh, in Luther's day, when he was a Catholic, did he come to reject? Yes, of course. There was there was abuses that even a Catholic would recognize in those days. Tetzel was going around selling indulgences, saying if you 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 pay for you pay money and you can get grace enough grace to spring someone out of purgatory. You know, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So he's he's playing this system. And saying, "Hey, if you if you give me enough money, you can get people out of purgatory and into heaven." So, yes, that's exactly what's going on. Yeah, they call it okay. The treasury of the church. Yes, I think I read somewhere that even those 
acts of work like pendants and stuff pushes things into that treasury that can be shared with yes i i think there is i think there is this idea that people people who are super good they build that can actually can actually get a little bit of work what is it super works of is it super i i I might be i'm i'm outside of my uh Comfort zone here, but uh, but but yes, I think there are there are you can you can earn you can earn merit either for yourself or for someone else. Hence the lighting of candles, for instance. That you're you're actually you're actually securing grace for them rather than for yourself. But uh, you can do either one. Okay, so it's very very clever approach there. But uh, that's the satisfaction view now. It, it, it become it's like I say it's the closest one to the truth because there is a satisfaction of the wrath of God that is important in this view. Uh, so we, we, we've 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 at least come past that hurdle. Uh, but what what we need here is something beyond mere satisfaction, and that is what we call penal substitution. Okay, this is the view. Uh, penal satisfaction, penal substitution view, holds that Christ died to expiate the guilt incurred by human sinners by his vicarious atonement. So vicarious in the place of. You're, you know, in Roman Catholic theology, what is what is the Pope called? The vicar of Christ. He is the replacement for Christ on earth. Okay, so so he he, he stands in for God. On the earth as the as the head of the church because Jesus isn't here the Pope is the head of the church he stands in for Christ so a vicarious atonement then is atonement that Christ died in our place so he stands in for us and takes uh, the punishment that should have been ours okay so it's a vicarious satisfaction. So it's a substitutionary satisfaction, not just a, a a general satisfaction for wrath generally, but actually a specific substitution for me, for you. And so the penal consequences of sin are endured by him, and uh, and this is necessary because of God's holy nature. So here uh, we have uh, the satisfaction of God's wrath clearly made. So, firstly, we have satisfaction, which we already saw in the Roman Catholic view, but let's let's establish that, that it is a satisfaction, because this is something that uh, a lot of people don't like. God's an angry God. His wrath needs to be satisfied. I don't like your God. Now, you might not like our God, but it's the, it's the God who is. So, you, you don't really get that choice to determine who your God is. Uh, but there is a satisfaction of God's wrath. Uh, we see this, I think, perhaps reflected most clearly in these verses. It's, I mean, it's through the scriptures, but uh, this, uh, these verses here. God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And this word propitiation is a satisfaction of the wrath of God. That's, that's the definition of propitiation. So God displays Christ publicly as the satisfaction of his wrath. Why? This was to demonstrate God's righteousness so that he might not only be just, okay, so he is righteous himself, 
but also then the justifier of everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so it, I mean, there, there, there's a lot packed into this verse. So God's wrath is satisfied publicly by Jesus Christ so that God was able to justify us and do it justly. Okay, that's, 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 that wraps up this whole idea of, of satisfaction. So the holiness of God is a constitutional standard to which all must conform. God, God's holiness must be satisfied. The righteousness of God requires that he conform perfectly to his own constitutional standards. He can't just reward sinners. He just can't do that. That's, that's, that, that would betray who God is. And so the justice of God demands the perfect administration of his own righteous standard throughout his whole universe, both retributively and remuneratively. There's something missing there. Both retributively and remuneratively. That is, he, he, he took, it, it takes care of the wrath that should have been ours and supplies for us the merit that we need in order to please God. Okay, does that follow? Slow me down and ask a question if the, if the, if any of these things don't don't follow. Okay. So when Christ died, he paid two senses of debt. It's a pecuniary debt. Okay. What what do we mean? This is a, this is a commercial transaction, such as the payment of a fine. So if you're if you uh, if you have a uh, if you you know you run a stoplight and uh, you you get a fine given to you that's a that's a pecuniary debt that you have you owe money okay if you go out and kill someone and you're say in Texas doesn't work in Michigan I suppose but if you're out in Texas and you go out and kill someone what do you owe now yeah you you owe more than just things. You you actually owe your life. So this is so it's uh, so it's not only a pecuniary debt paying the fine, but also a personal or penal satisfaction in the realm of crimes in person. So he not only paid our debt in full, he also made atonement for the penalties due in our very persons. It's going to become important for us when we talk about the extent of the atonement, uh, because when Christ dies on the cross, he doesn't just we, we don't want to have this picture of this this big sum of money there to pay all the fines of anybody who who prays in faith. It is it's actually a personal substitution that is made. I think this is going to be very important to us. So in order to accomplish this, he not only needed to have incurred no penalty of his own, uh, otherwise he'd be simply paying his own debt. He also needed to supply a payment greater than or equal to what was done due from all for whom he died. Okay, so he so he needed to uh, he needed to die a death and secure merit uh, that is greater than all the merit that is needed uh, by uh, uh, by those for whom he died. Okay. And under, unlike any other view of the atonement, the penal substitutionary atonement recognizes 
the importance of the details of the atonement. And there's a lot of details. Uh, and, and, and we see it starts out all the way back in the Old Testament when you see the in, just incredible detail that is given given to the sacrifices. You know, the blood had to be manipulated a certain way and sprinkled here, and you could eat this part and not eat, and you had to, you know, you cut off the fat portions. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of you know, grotesque details, you know, in some senses. It's, it, it, the picture that I, that I have is, uh, you know, you almost get a little squeamish. And I and I hunt, you know. And, and, and there's just all kinds of all kinds of detail. Why why all that detail? Well, because of the importance the, of of what has to be done here. Okay, it, it's not just any, eh, whatever. What a, he could do it any other any any number of ways, or he could have died any number of deaths. No, no, no. It, it was very specific uh, in order to be what we needed. Okay. The, the atonement could have occurred no way other than how it did in history. Okay, so that's satisfaction, but also substitution. I think is this is this is the missing element in Roman Catholic theology. So it's the death of Christ in the place of sinner sinners called the vicarious atonement. This is seen, of course, in the symbolic transfer of guilt to the Old Testament sacrifices, particularly on the Day of Atonement. Right, there would be two goats. Okay, the one goat was 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 killed, uh, but then the other, the the priest would lay his hands upon them and transfer the guilt of the people onto this goat symbolically, and then he would be released into the wilderness, and he would be a, accompanied by a, you know his own private shepherd until he was well out of range, and there he would probably die in the wilderness. But the the idea here is that he was carrying away the sins that had been piled on top of him and so the, the guilt of all those sins was taken out by the by the uh, by the goat out into the wilderness okay so there's there's that's there's, that's what symbolism is about we also see this in Isaiah's suffering servant he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. The past punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And here's the key verse. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. For the transgression of my people he was stricken, and he bore the sins of many. And so we're sort of condensing that. But but the idea is there. When Jesus died on the cross, our sins were on him. And he carried them away. He bore them away. See this reflected in the New Testament as well. Second Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming that curse for us. So he bears the, the punishment in himself. 1 Peter 2.14, he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. And we could really multiply these out. Great many texts in which Christ's life and his blood was given for us, on behalf of us, etc., etc. And there's there's just all kinds of verses to uh, to that effect. Now, 
just a comment here, particularly on Second Corinthians 5.21, when Christ became sin for us. This is not to suggest that he actually became a writhing mass of, of sin on the cross. Some suggest this. He didn't experience our sins, nor could he have. Instead, the substitution was legal. He incurred the guilt, that is, the legal liability, the punishment that was ours, but was not corrupted by our sins. Okay, And I think we have a nice example of this uh, where Paul uses atonement language uh, when he's speaking of, of Philemon, remember, uh, uh, Onesimus, actually, the, uh, the slave that had run away. And, and uh, he says, you know, he gives, he gives to him uh, some resources and sends him back to his owner and says, you know, here's your, here's your slave. He's, I want him restored to you. He wants to do the right thing. We recognize that he stole from you. Um, if he doesn't have enough to cover what he stole, then put it on my account. Um, and and, that, and that's, it's that, that same language. Put it on my account. That doesn't mean that Paul now becomes guilty of Onesimus' theft, but rather he's assuming responsibility for the debt. Okay, so it's a legal, it's it's a legal uh, uh, substitution, not a not a not a not a, not not one where he actually becomes the sin for us, uh, but rather he he bears the penalty for that sin in himself. I think that that makes for a nice nice illustration of that. Okay, in no sense are we to see Christ's actions as the assumption though of race depravity. This is a view that's held by Augustus Hopkins Strong. Where he, whereby he became complicit in the sins of those with whom he shared solidarity, which has become rather popular today in terms of racial reconciliation. Right, the idea of the idea of reparations that are being uh, talked about that that the whole race bears the guilt of the the sins of individuals within it. Okay, so uh, you know the idea that that that. You know, white men particularly are guilty uh, because of a racial solidarity we have with all other white men that have populated America. Some of them were abusive. Some of them got ahead on the shoulders of the of the of the of slave labor and such. And so, for that reason, that we all share that guilt. And some have taken that to see to be that's what Christ was doing. He was. He was sharing this racial solid, he was having this racial solidarity, and he was being punished because he was actually the, he was actually guilty, um, because of the benefits that came to him because he was part of this group that had sinned. That's not the point that's being made here. Uh, uh, rather he's, he's actually, he's actually taking upon him guilt, uh, guilt that wasn't his. This is guilt of another that he, in his in his own graciousness, assumes, uh, not something that he is he is he is actually liable to punishment himself for. Does that make sense? Does that follow? Because I, 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 it's just amazing how 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 I, I, I'm trying to refrain from pulling politics into this, but you're you're seeing so much of this enacted here uh, in in our world today. Um, 
it's just frightening to see see what the social justice is doing, oftentimes in the name of what happened on the cross, and they're just flat out wrong on it. So. Other thoughts on that? Okay, so we're we're looking at a penal substitutionary atonement really the only approach that satisfies all of the texts of scripture which are very numerous as to what Christ was doing on the cross. He's satisfying the wrath of God primarily uh, with benefit for us. Okay? Well, at least get started on this next section here. Uh, what we're going to call categories of the atonement. So we're trying to make this a little bit more specific. Okay, what exactly does Christ do on the cross? And uh, we're going to see here, um, we have four problems. And when Christ died on the cross, there are separate solutions for each problem. We have a problem of guilt that's met with expiation. We have a problem of bondage that is met with redemption. We have a problem of being under God's wrath that is met with uh, propitiation. And we have a problem of being alienated from God, which is solved by the solution of Christ reconciling us to God. So these are the these these are the these are the four primary things uh, that we see happening on the cross. So first of all, I think we can get through the first one here. Guilt is met with expiation, and uh, we find these illustrations here in the Old Testament. The Lord makes His life. In the suffering servant, the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. And I think this pulls into view the whole of the sacrificial system here. Uh, John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, and that's the meaning of expiation, incidentally, to take away, the removal. Okay, Behold the Lamb of God who removes the sins of the world. That would have been just a remarkable statement and those who were listening carefully light bulbs would have been going off in their heads okay um what is jesus he's the lamb of god that's a why is he being described in that way well they've they've been doing sacrifices for 1400 years and they're like oh now we understand we knew there were sacrifices but they this blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sin. So, what what solution is there? Well, there's the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, and they would have been very uh, excited about what they heard here. So, guilt is met with expiation. Hebrews nine twenty six. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin. And the sacrifice of himself. And there's this idea of expiation. It's removed. So guilt, is, as defined above here, is legal liability to punishment. I know that's something of a technical definition. We use it incorrectly all the time. We tend to think of guilt as a feeling. Where guilt really isn't a feeling. I mean, it, it, it might be attended by feelings. Uh, but guilt is, is actually very objective. Either you're liable to a punishment or you're not liable to a punishment. It doesn't really matter whether you feel guilty or don't feel guilty. The question is, in the eyes of the law, are you guilty or are you not guilty? Okay, And so it's a legal liability to punishment. And the punishment 
for offending God's life. Sin doubt disqualifies a person morally from living. Romans one thirty two says, Those who do these things are worthy of death, and everybody knows it. The wages of sin is death. We know this. So the only other alternative to us dying forever is for the perfect, sinless, vicarious sacrifice of another human life. That's the only way that guilt can be remedied. We can either remedy, we can, we can either have, we can either die and suffer forever this infinite penalty that is ours, or it can be placed on an infinite being who can bear it for us. Those are the only two options. And the idea of expiation is the solution. Now this, this word is a, is a word that there's some debate about. The, the, the idea derives from a Hebrew word, kafar. Some think of this as, as from an Arabic root that means to cover. You, you sometimes hear this. Um, that the idea is that the sacrifice is covered up our guilt or the guilt of Old Testament sinners, uh, and it just piled and piled up and just covered and covered. Like I, I call this the landfill view of the atonement, right? <laughs> you know, your, your sins are just covered up until until Jesus comes and wipes away the whole landfill. Well, that's that's not the that's not the sense of the word here, kafar. Rather, it probably comes from an Akkadian root, much older which means to wipe off or to blot out, or the word expiate as we've used here. And so the idea here is reflected in a number of other verbs in the Old Testament. Purging, guilt, uh, purifying. This, is, this word here is actually to unsin, to undo a sin. I mean, it's, the word is actually the same word as, as sin. Okay, so to purify is to to unsin or to undo the sin uh, through the offering of a sacrifice, and the same verb is translated blot out, with the result that the offer was clean and washed whiter than snow. Okay, so the idea of purifying the removal of guilt is such that you are rendered clean and white. Taking away iniquity, in Isaiah 6-7, the term is used parallel uh, with this word kafar. So he's going to expiate and take away. It's another verb that means to take away. Same thing in Psalm 103. He's going to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west and cast it into the depths of the sea, which is just an idiom here for a complete uh, elimination, like, you know, Bin Laden, cast him into the sea, he's gone. And there's, there's reason they, they bury him, they, they took him, take him and bury him at sea. So there, there could be no grave whereby he could become a martyr. It was very carefully done because they just, they just wanted him gone. They buried him at sea, he's gone. You'll never get at him. And that's the idea here that's captured here. Our sin is just gone. There's no monument to our sin that's left. It's 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 gone. So, just as it was a, a horrible idea, a horrible concept here uh, that uh, brings fear to our, our minds when we're talking about people. It's a wonderful idea when it comes to sin, right? Uh, there's there's also the lifting away or the clearing of the guilty. Again, used in parallel with this verb kafar and blotting out. Remembering them no more. 
Okay. So all these terms here, these are these are these are other verbs that are alongside of this word kafar to, to tell us what the meaning is: to remove guilt, to to purge away, to uh, to clean, and such. And so this is almost certainly what the meaning here of of this term means. So expiation is what takes place. Our guilt is removed. It's gone. Okay. I'm trying to think of whether I should talk even talk about this box here because it's a it's a giant can of worms here. <laughs> but uh, basically, the question is what were the uh, what what were the Old Testament sacrifices doing for the people in the Old Testament? If in fact they did not, if the blood of bulls and goats did not take away Hebrews, right? Did they do not take away guilt? For what reason were they doing this? Uh, there's a couple of options out there that people suggest. Some suggest that they were just covering their sin temporarily. Again, that's the landfill view. The problem is, as you look through the Old Testament, the language of expiation is very prominent. When they offered these sacrifices, their sin was removed, and they became quite happy about it. You know, they they would have fellowship meals, and they would rejoice, and the priest would get involved, and they would eat the eat the the best parts of the of the meat, and it would be a grand. They they, they were excited about what the sacrifices did, and we scratch our heads and say, why? Because Hebrews says sacrifices don't take away guilt. So were they just wrong? Or were they just deluded? What, what was what was their thinking? And uh, there's a very good article uh, about about this topic that John Whitcomb writes, Christ's Atonement in Animal Sacrifices in Israel. And basically, he suggests that there's basically there's three reasons why sacrifices were offered. The primary one, he said, was for a system of crime and punishment in the Israelite community. So. Um, when the sacrifices were offered, it made the individual right with society. We use that language, right? Sometimes when uh, when a when a criminal goes to prison, he what he pays his debt to society, and then he's released. Okay. Um, when when we say when when we say that, uh, we're suggesting that when he that when he comes out, the debt has been paid, and as a result, um, he can walk around freely in society. Does it save him? No. So how was he saved? That's, what? How was an Old Testament <clears throat> Jew saved? Same way we are. But he didn't have the revelation of Christ. Well, he, yeah, he, he, was, he was saved by grace through faith in God and the promises that he gave, which are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Obviously, he doesn't have that detail. If if they didn't participate in the sacrifices, they weren't of belief? I would... Well, yes. Okay. I think we we have something of a parallel in the... the, uh, And I I was going to get to here on the the second point. But, But, yeah, so the first thing is to... And, and this seems to be the primary reason is to take care of sin within the community. Didn't save them any more than going to the uh, police station or wherever you pay your fine will 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 save you. You know, you go you go to you go to the police station, 
or the what, whatever court there you have whatever you have to go to pay your fine if you have a speeding ticket you you pay it does that save you no but it makes you right with society and so that's the first thing that the sacrifices did the second thing that they did was to offer if i can put it this way something of a prefigurement of what's going to happen. So it's an anticipation of what is yet to come. I think this is particularly clear uh, when we when we look at the fact that these sacrifices are resumed in the millennium. Why do they do that? Well, as a memorial. Okay, so now comes the question. Did you have do you have to do those things in order to get saved? Do you have to participate in the memorials of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in the church today in order to be saved. No. There's, there's a sense in which Especially you could all, well, you know, there's a sense in, in which you could look at that and, and say, no, but, but well, kind of yes. <laughs> you know, right? No, you don't have to be baptized. You don't have to participate <clears throat> in communion in order to be saved. But if you get saved and thereafter don't get baptized and never take communion and never join yourself to a church, then you've got a good reason to wonder whether the salvation actually took, right? Okay. So I think the same thing applies then to the sacrifices. Do you have to do the sacrifices in order to be saved? No, but no one who was saved would not. Okay. Uh, this is this is sort of the this is sort of the proof. The evidence of the fact that they are are believers. So the same as James would say, it'd be exactly yes, conversion without the works. Correct obedience, right? Yeah. Correct commands. Yes. Yeah, so this, so this is this is obedience. Do you need to be obedient in order to get to heaven? No, but anybody who's on their way to heaven is obedient, and if they're not, you question whether they're on their way to heaven. So yes. So, so that hopefully that answers the question. Did they have to offer their sacrifices to get to heaven? Well, no, not technically. But it, if they were really truly believers, they they would they would follow the the rules. Because because I was hashing this over after a couple of lessons ago, mm-hmm. and it consistently talks about sac, you know sacrifices and atonement. Right. But then we yes. turn around and say it doesn't atone. Right. Atone. So it, it atones on a local level. But not on a grand level. Just like when you go to pay your fine for your police ticket, your, your your speeding ticket, it atones on a local level. It makes you right with society and means that they're not going to be pounding your door to get to get the fine money or to give you a subpoena or whatever because you paid it. But it didn't didn't you know make your chances of getting into heaven any better. Gee, I, used, I guess I right used to serve think more or less that this was sort of like a placeholder until Christ completed that work. Right. Yeah, that's what I that's what I've said is sort of a the, the land sort of a landfill view of the atonement. That it sort of covers up and you've got to do this periodically to cover up the guilt. It, it's a sort of you know keeps keeps your lawn looking nice until Jesus comes. And then, then Jesus comes and, and fixes everything. And I don't think that that's quite the picture we should have. Okay? So, when when Christ dies on the cross, he does, on a grand scale, 
what the animal sacrifices did on a local scale. And I give some reasons why that's valuable. It successfully avoids the problem of two ways of salvation. It's not as though you're saved by animal sacrifice in the Old Testament and saved by Jesus' sacrifice in the New. That's, that's, that's not the way it is. You're saved by Christ in either, in either dispensation. Um, oppositely, it avoids the reduction of the offering of sacrifices to mere symbol or a road exercise. Sacrifice always expiates. <clears throat> Question is, what does it expiate? Does it expiate your guilt before God, or only does it expiate your guilt with regard to the covenant community? Okay, yeah. So, so we. I mean, if, you, if it, would, it would be like saying, okay, um, you, you go in, in front of a, a judge and they say, okay, you have to go to pay pay your fine of two hundred dollars, and they say, you've you you've been cleared. Your 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 your, your record's been cleared, and now you're free to go. And it, it would be odd for you to say, I'm saved? <laughs> well, no, that's not what he was doing. He was doing this on a local level. <laughs> he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't clearing our record before God. He was just clearing his, the record for whatever jurisdiction he has. And I think that's exactly what we've got with the sacrifices. They are, they are clearing your record, but not the big record. <laughs> If I can put it that way. And then I think today also it renders Christ's sacrifice an actual penal accomplishment and not merely a pecuniary provision. Remember, the pecuniary provision is a payment of a fine. It's not just that he paid a fine, but he actually substituted himself. So he did not simply supply a potential salvation for everybody on the cross, but he secured an actual sacrifice and made necessary, it it made necessary all that it intended by the work worked, which is the language that's sometimes used. There are no additional means of salvation, uh, in, in, in our world, only instruments there too even faith you know we talk about faith faith is not a means of salvation the only means of salvation is christ uh faith is simply an instrument there too so we don't want to we don't want to raise the level of faith to this level of what we do to get saved rather it's 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 something of an acknowledgement of what christ has done so even in faith there's something of a passivity to it Okay, it's just an acknowledgement. We can't do anything. He has to do it, and it's not just—it's not okay. I I bring my faith to the table. I put that on the table, and that's what my part. Not really. No, it's it's actually it's it's actually a statement that I I don't have a part. I realize this, and I know it. And only Christ can can do what I can do. So that's why we we tend to think of faith not as a means of salvation per se. Something that I do to get saved, my part, a work, uh, but rather my acknowledgement of of, of 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 what Christ has done. Does that make sense? Does that follow? So all that I think is is helped by this understanding of what the sacrifices in the Old Testament do. Hopefully that was clear as mud. So that's the first of four categories. Guilt is taken care of by expiation. Well, it also clears things up about, you know, what about the godly man who lived before the sacrifice sacrificial system was established, and what about the times when the temple, there were no godly priests that administered 
sacrifice. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they could still be saved, mm-hmm. even though they didn't offer sacrifices. Yeah, very good. Yeah, good, good thoughts. Okay. See you next week. We've got three weeks left. <laughs>